Don't talk to me unless it's about this. We are back with our big, wonderful Americana book club. Marie and I are so happy to be talking with Meredith and Leah again from the Unified Sisters Co-op. And we've now read from part four to the end of Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And I finished that entire part in one day, which was like 200 pages. Granted, I was traveling. Um, but it was, I'm so glad I did because I could not have put it down. And then I like couldn't fall asleep after because I was so <laughs> energized. And I thought we could start by talking about Ifemelu more. I feel like we really saw her grow so much in the second half. And I loved having all of your thoughts and ideas about her in my head as I was reading this part. And I'm curious what people saw as her kind of greatest strengths as she grew and also her weaknesses that followed her throughout the book. One of the things, one of the scenes that really stuck out to me in the second half, especially based on the conversation that we had last time, was this scene in the hair salon in the U.S. still. Uh, and this is towards the beginning of this section, I think, um, where she, after judging her hairdresser and being kind of rude to her a little bit the whole time, all of a sudden grows this like really intense empathy for her and um, kind of it, it kind of blew me away because even like the conversation we'd had the last time of like, how this showed a different side of her. And then all of a sudden it was like this moment of her realizing like, I'm going back to Nigeria. I, um, yeah, I relate to this person in some way. Um, yeah, I don't know what other people thought of that, but I was thinking of you all when I was reading that scene because it was, it like turned a full 180. Well, I noticed with that scene, I feel like it tracked with what was happening in the future, what we saw with her. And then in the present moment, I was like, oh, that was a really kind of unexpected turn. If I had read, if we had read just the hair salon scene, like actually as one scene, it was unclear, you know, what really made her turn. I, I think, uh, Marie, I heard what, a little bit of what you saw of, she kind of had this realization of, oh, me and this person are from not the same actual place, but like we have something in common but it was very surprising to me that that she turned, you know, kind of her tune with her hairdresser there. I think for one thing I really connected with in part two of the book was her sheer confidence. I found so inspiring, A, making the decision to go home, really leaning into her independence. And when she joined Zoe magazine, um, I actually studied magazine journalism at university. So I really connected with that. And then as a female founder and having an entrepreneurial spirit, I was really impressed when she realized that Zoe was not the right fit for her and the ideal that they were instilling in their, you know, magazine and knowing that I felt she realized a lot of the narrative that they were publishing was actually bought. A lot of the big profiles they were doing on Nigerian women, socialites, et cetera, governors was, was bought. So, you know, she kind of, did not have her freedom of speech and they were not in tune with her ideas. And I just am so inspired that she had such bravery and courage and strength to start her own new blog, um, not knowing if it would be as successful or controversial. So I just really connected with her in this part to be like, wow, she believes in herself and she's going for it. 
Yeah, I think that that really resonates with me, Meredith, because I was thinking she's fiercely independent and she always speaks her mind. And the combination is both admirable, can also get her into trouble sometimes. But even, I mean, we kind of meandered through and she moved to Maryland to be with Kurt. She moved to New Haven to be with Blaine. And neither one of those moves felt like her whole world centered around the men that she moved for. With Blaine, she was constantly evaluating his friends, his friend group, who she liked, who she didn't, making her own connections, which ultimately, I guess, led to their demise. And her willingness to speak honestly, some people liked it more than others, but she challenged people in America. She also challenged people in Nigeria. Her... I love the tone with which she speaks because it's very flippant, especially in the blogs. But even when she went to Nigerpolitan, you know, she was challenging people there, talking shit when she came to the event and knew what it was going to be about. Like she is them, but she was still challenging it. And I, I love that. I would say on the flip side, I guess, to Caitlin's question, um, One of her biggest weaknesses, I think, is that she was very prideful. And that, I don't know how you can disentangle that from her independence, because I think one beats the other. But it really, I think, made things harder for her. Um, Like, she had the years of silence with Obensei, and even connecting, and the fact that multiple people around her throughout the time said they felt judged by her because she did say judgmental things that would be hurtful if someone who cared about you said those things. And she wasn't always apologetic about it either. So I think her ability to like step back and see things for what they are and speak the truth about them was great. But her inability to situate that within a broader context of how she fit in in a way that was always like kind or supportive kind of undermined some of her greatest strength yeah that's a good point it's sort of the the dark side and the light side of the it you know there's like sort of the devil and the angel on the shoulder for for those qualities i noticed uh, to kind of, I, I think it might be her pride, but, or just understanding judgment because she herself is judgmental. But I found it really interesting that when she returned to Lagos, she lied about her relationship status. I found that really interesting that she had spent all this time in the U.S. kind of trying to be becoming a more authentic version of herself which we talked about last time. And then she returned to Lagos and it was almost like she was hiding a bit of who she was and trying to fit into the culture there, or maybe even avoid, (laughs) I don't know, the culture of uh, obsession around partnership, marriage, relationship. Um, She wasn't able to be a proud, single, independent person, even though I felt like her independence autonomy was such a strong part of who she was. She was able to use these strengths of hers in some places of life, but not all. And I found myself almost thinking about her like, oh, I just want to be her. She's so cool. She's so independent. She's this great writer. She's this honest thinker. And then I remember like, okay, but 
like everyone, she has her weaknesses. And I think for her, a lot of it was in relationships and letting herself be open and honest, as open as honest as she is in her blog, in her relationships. And also, like you said, Marie, she in some ways seems to be thriving so much when she got back to Lagos and also was living in this way, this inauthentic way of lying about her relationship status, of not calling Obinze right away. And so it it was, okay, she's human too. <laughs> I, I also thought it was interesting that when her and Blaine were becoming a bit disconnected in their intimate relationship, what brought them together was the election with, you know, Clinton versus Obama and their dedication to seeing Obama get elected. And then I was really proud of her for taking on that fellowship and moving out of Lane's apartment. You know, I think as an independent woman um, at a certain age, that can feel risky. You know, you're you're in a, a stable relationship with this great guy on paper. You live together, but you just got this amazing opportunity and now you're going to live apart. Um, and I thought that was really incredible for her. And then to see how she had to almost code switch back home in Nigeria. And, you know, like Marie was saying, keep up the facade of still being in a relationship with her American boyfriend just shows you like how the culture can be so shifting for her. Marie, I know you wanted to talk more about how Obama brought them together and how that tracked their relationship. I thought that was such an interesting kind of like pet project they had and that that was as clear like their only glue. Otherwise, I don't really think they would have made it. And we could go into that now, Marie, if you want uh, to start with sharing more about what you thought about that part of their relationship. Well, I guess, it. I mean, I thought it was an interesting choice that that was sort of what kept them together in a way because part of the rift prior was that uh, Blaine was hosting a protest on campus that if em- if Emelu decided kind of casually she wasn't going to attend and support, and he was really offended by that. And so then this activism piece is kind of what brought them back together. So I thought, I thought that was interesting just narratively, but and personally, you know, I think we all <laughs> lived through that time as adults and the feelings that she was describing. And I volunteered for the Obama campaign as well during that time and was knocking on doors and going to rallies and all of the the signs that, <laughs> that she even describes the like sign that said change in white lettering. Like there were all these little things about um, their experiences of that that felt so true to me as well. And and I, I loved reliving that personally. I thought, so that resonated with me too, because I, I think all of us were probably knocking on, just doing all the things that we could do is very exciting and hopeful time. And it seemed to hit their relationship at a point where she realized, if Amelu realized that her and Blaine did not have the same values on many things. And I think she pointed it out. It is great. Like when you're first seeing someone, it's like, oh my gosh, you think so differently. And then, you know, down the line, it's like, why can't you just see it very clearly? And all of those things kind of flipped. And it did give them like a shared experience where they saw things the same way. But I thought it was interesting how she said she became 
like really invested in Obama after reading the book, but she only read it because he didn't mention, like Blaine didn't push her to. He just kind of left it out there. And then she read it and felt the same passion. And I wonder how much of her independence or need for independence from him was like just her personal desire to differ from what he said because she had views that they were different or what they actually differed on. Because she did feel comfortable in these academic circles or having in spaces that made me think that they might be a little bit more similar than she gave them credit for. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Leah. And I think one of my favorite blog posts for part two that she shared was on paperback page 419, Is Obama Anything But Black? I loved when she wrote, in America, you don't get to decide what race you are. It is decided for you. Um, and just reading that blog post brought me back to like the the whole period of Obama, you know, becoming president. But then thinking back that almost the word he and, and the family, the Obamas survived eight years without drama, you know, without some big spectacle. And rereading this now in 2022 just brought back so many feelings about, you know, I also volunteered for the Obama campaign. And I just, I was, I would say to anybody who is reading the book or about to read the book, um, this was really interesting to be retrospective um, and remembering that time. And one part I also really connected with when Blaine put together the protest for Mr. White, the security guard is, um, you know, if Amelia did not attend, as co-founder of Unified Sisters Co-op, where we discuss and lean into diversity and inclusion, I would have been there, you know, sign in hand. I probably would have been, you know, Blaine's co-planner. So I really resonated with him in this part of the the book. And I thought it was really relevant um, on page 427 when he confronted her about her not coming and her actually lying to him because, you know, he said, Quote, you know, it's not just about writing a blog. You have to live like you believe it. That blog is a game that you don't really take seriously. It's like choosing an interesting elective evening class to compete your credit. I just thought that was really interesting because if you read her blog, you might make an assumption she would go. But then I wanted to also be empathetic to her that she is not an African-American. She is Nigerian. So she's an Americana. So I liked to try to view this in two different parts when I was reading that section of the book. You raise a good point. The other thing that just came to mind is that part of the reason she didn't like Mr. White is because he made her feel uncomfortable physically with the way that he looked at her and the ways that they interacted that Blaine didn't notice. And I don't know if this is a theme throughout the book, but it's certainly come up with the tennis instructor as well, where something happens in the realm of feeling violated sexually or physically, and she completely avoids the issue. I I wonder if she blamed him for not noticing because she did mention multiple events or occasions that this came up and he didn't, he didn't pay attention or see her, see it happening. And we didn't really get to hear why if Emilio didn't want to go. There was a lot left for us to interpret. I also wondered if she maybe had different ideas about what shape activism takes. And for her, maybe this protest was, she was kind of saw it like as not important or, you know, I just, we didn't get to actually hear that. And so I was wondering all the different 
reasons or angles why she might have not gone. Yeah, Leah, I I think your point about how she had expressed discomfort with that relationship and that Blaine hadn't really tuned into that, it's kind of reminding me of, you know, other times in the past, like you said, I mean, she had a couple of these instances where she felt uncomfortable or even the, I don't know if you would call it a sexual assault, but the like really negative experience she had in the, in the front half of the book where she just shut Obinze out. Uh, it seems like this is kind of a, a way that she copes with the negative experiences one can have, I think, while showing up in the world as a woman. And I think there's like this intersectionality that's happening there that Blaine isn't really seeing. I think he was really offended that she didn't show up to support him in this sort of racial justice moment. And for her, it was sort of, there was another piece of the puzzle there. But but we we don't really, like you said, Caitlin, we don't really get to see that. But it's interesting to see that theme play out now that I'm looking back on it of the multiple times that she had these like sexual harassment moments and shut down. I'm now making the connection to an interview I listened to with Chimamanda and the uh, the interviewer asked her, you know, oh, I've heard you say that you, I forget the way she phrased it, something like, it was some kind of bold statement like, sexism is more present than racism. And Chimamanda was like, first of all, like, I don't rate these things. I don't like, we're not going to put them, you know, and there was a blog that FM wrote about that kind of thing. Like there's no uh, oppression Olympics. But Chimamanda said, she says, for myself personally, in my circles, more of the people in my life understand racism and less of them seem to understand sexism. And so she felt like for her, there were more times within her inner circles that she would feel like she had to explain herself or she'd have people kind of doubting her like do you really think that was sexism you know i feel like this exi- this story with afem and the mr white is maybe showing that little sliver of, of her life experience in that situation where blaine like you said leah didn't notice it or didn't wasn't something on his radar so just to be like devil's advocate here um and to kind of stir stir it up I actually reflected on that scene when I read later in the book when she was talking about um, being a parent and the difference between being a parent in America and being a parent in Nigeria, that she just felt that sometimes in America culture, in American culture, that we're sometimes a little too casual. Um, so, you know, if you say, hey, how are you? And you reply good to her that didn't feel formal enough. Um, you know, if a little kid says, how old are you? And they raise the number five on their hand. She'd rather them say, I am five. Um, and when she shared that with some American friends, they called her more conservative. And then I chuckled a little to myself when she was like, that's like a bad word, right? Being called conservative could be like such a, a criticism. Uh, I think we know that better now in 2022 than we did in 2013 uh, when the book came out. But a little bit of me was wondering, um, with her interactions with Mr. White and being an Americana and not growing up in you know, uh, Black culture, Mr. White being an older Black gentleman who was friendly, a little more uh, outgoing to her, a little handy. Some might see that as just friendly and casual versus being a little more misogynistic, intruding her space. But yeah, I think it, it comes to, you know, sexism and then 
the layer of racism and there could also be a layer of classism uh, because he's a security guard and she's surrounded by Blaine, who's an academic. So I think this whole sector had like actually three to four like pretty complex layers to it. And Lee, I'd be curious what you think of that. I hate it. I'm just kidding. Uh, I knew she was going to say something good back. Sorry. You probably have to cut that. Um, I like it. No, I, I think that you're right because there is a lot that was wound up in it. And I was just reflecting on the point. I think you said, Caitlin, about more people understanding racism than sexism. But in my own as you said that, I was reflecting upon my own professional experiences and how many times sexism has come up. And also that that in, I'm just thinking about, is this true? But in some of the more egregious examples, um, the person who was effectuating the sexual harassment was also Black. And so then it's like, who are you going to tell, right? I mean, there's just a lot of layers with talking about these experiences and then with or reporting them to it within a system where it's not going to be managed by someone who's black and maybe introducing overly punitive consequences or other things. I, I thought that that was a really important point. And then Chimamanda, or not Chimamanda, if Amelu was saying basically like, okay, Blaine is all up in arms about this, but he hasn't been down this whole time. And then he's saying like, you say you're down all the time, but you're not down for this. And then she also mentioned the Mr. White's daughter as well as like another character who's kind of in the mix. And the class dynamics, I think were really, really interesting too. It's like a nice parallel when you think about Blaine complaining that someone called him demanding a cell phone and he was paying for this student's um, education. And he's like, yeah, I'm rich. I pay for a hundred kids to go to school. Like not even that I care about it, but that's what rich people do. There's just so, it's a very, I'm processing this in real time. So I don't have all of the, I don't have any conclusions yet, but it is interesting to see how she overlays it and where she overlays it. The other places I can think that this comes up would be the hair salon, and then also when she was working at Zoe, where she's working with people and there was all this discussion about class in Nigeria because they were all Black. And then you have someone who's living what they thought above their means. Um, and then someone who was not living within her means because she was donating all her money to the church and then starving. And if Amelu doesn't talk about these things directly, but it's she observes them and she seems to have a lot of judgment around class, I would say even more so than I expected around some of the other. She's, she feels very principled, right? Like either you're working hard or you're not. You love them or you don't. And she criticizes a lot of her friends and Auntie Uju for being in affairs with married men that are providing for them. But then in the end, it, I felt like she kind of ended up in the same position with regard to being in an affair. But she it seemed like she distinguished the fact that she was able to earn her own money as a, as a way of heightening her position above some of the other women. And so, all of, I mean, this is a long answer, but all of this is kind of marinating in my mind and coming together as soup <laughs> um, because the way she deals with, she deals very straight on with racism. She deals 
pretty straight out of sexism as well with regard to how people respond to her, what they expect from her, how alarmed they are with how direct she is. But she doesn't talk as clearly or as directly about class, but it comes up in the other ways or like when she returned to the nice neighborhoods or when Ronnie said, oh, this place is so nice. And she was like, I hate it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it's great. We're talking about, yeah, the multiple layers that are happening and being overlaid. And I think we didn't talk about this um, directly yet, but just the intercultural dynamic as well. Both, I think, in the U.S., but also when she goes back to Lagos and, and there's, you know, sort of, I guess it seems like tribal distinctions, like the landlord said that he normally wouldn't rent to someone that's Igbo. And so, you know, I think there's so, there's so many different layers in this book. And um, I mean, talked about very explicitly, obviously through FM's blog, but also not explicitly in, in regards to, I think specifically like class. My name is Annie and I currently live in Maryland. I don't remember where I first heard about this book, but I am so glad I was connected with Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I have a good friend who is from Nigeria, and that may have been why I was so eager to read the story. I love reading books from writers who are from all the different corners of the world, and I often learn a lot from these stories. But I wasn't expecting so much of Ife Metal's story resonating with me personally. I am a Finnish immigrant to the U.S. And the way the writer describes America and its intermingling cultures with such keen and astute observations through this immigrant lens is remarkable and very accurate. I found many of the same things irritating, amazing, dumb, and confusing as she did while living here. I think the main character's no-nonsense way of communicating and inability to sugarcoat things was also something I relate to. Most Finns that I know speak directly and say what they mean without the complicated etiquette of best manners and small talk, a lot like Ifemelo does. I believe Ifemelo is one of the most authentic and honestly written characters that I have read. She's owning her flaws as well as confidently putting herself first. She allows herself to grieve the losses in her life, even if she was the one who made the decisions to move on and knew it was the right thing to do at the time. I don't think we talk enough about grief resulting from our own good decisions, like moving to a different country. And that was so refreshing to read on the page. Thank you, Chimamanda, for such a wonderful, honest human story. And best of luck with whatever amazing project you are currently working on. Yeah, I was going to talk just very similar, Marie, as I kind of, I, and this 
totally could be my Midwestern self, like coming out, reading it, um, is when she was back, you know, um, back home and, and getting, you know, acclimated and seeing her friends and getting her apartment. And then she rightfully admitted in, in the book, um, Ifemelu, that she even took herself by surprise in some of her responses where she used a great word and I can't remember what the word was, but just being very forceful, very direct, very blunt, um, raised voice. Like when she had the tile done in her new flat and she, I was, I was cringing for her, you know? Um, and then she did that, you know, at work a couple of times, the magazine and other places. And then I was like, well, you know, she wasn't like that in America. We didn't really see a lot of that, you know? Um, and now being back in Nigeria and, you know, returning to her home and the culture. Um, but then I also think there's probably a level of sexism there because as a single woman in her own flat, maybe she's not taken seriously. Maybe the work was shoddy because they thought that they could get away with it and she wouldn't speak up for herself. So I was kind of like having an internal battle of like, oh, you're being really insensitive and rude. But then as like, you know, also an independent woman, I was like, well, I mean, you got to stick up for yourself. And if you know what you, you're paying for it. So that was interesting for me to start seeing that side of her come out more in this part of the book. And her friend told her that she should have called Obinze when they talked about that tile incident. Again, just going back to kind of the sort of patriarchal culture at play. Well, even though Obinze like, said, called him, even though Obinze was like, well, yeah. why do you call me? Like, you know, mm-hmm. duh. Like, and you know, with one call that all could have been sorted for her. And Meredith, I think I found just a reference. It said, she, she had surprised herself. Where had that come from? The false bravado, the easy resort to threats. That's it. That was, yeah, I was trying, I was like kind of flipping carefully. That oh, I thought she just called it so well in that paragraph, that sentence. We saw each character in many situations kind of like dealing with someone above or below their class and whether and handling it either well or not well, you know, Blaine, I think we saw him really trying to make connections with people who weren't also professors around him. And I'm trying to think, I don't really know how if Himela was in the U.S. I mean, obviously, for the most part, didn't go well at the hair salon until the end. I don't know if we saw other situations until she got to Nigeria yeah, then it, it was another helpful moment of like, okay, everyone here is human, not perfect. She wants to stand up for herself. And unfortunately, the only way she knows how is in this with like bravado and threats. And maybe that was the only way for it to work. I don't know. Because um, clearly that guy didn't do a good job. <laughs> Speaking more about judgment, I think we saw a lot of angles around judgment about Ifemelu judging others, her feeling judged, her observing judgment, particularly around race in America. And I'm curious what lessons you all took away from the book in regard to judgment, either lessons that you feel like Chimamanda was trying to teach us or just lessons you, you know, feel like you took on your own from the book. If you're being out of order, go to one of your childhood, like close friends, and they'll just call you out. Like, I loved that scene when, you know, if Amelia was pushing the line and she knew she was, she went and knocked on Ronnie's door and Ronnie was like, call up day. Like, you are just self-projecting on me. You're, I love the term emotionally frustrated. 
Um, and she just called her out right there. So that that's kind of more of like a comical response to your to your very intellectual question. But I thought that was really good. It's true. And even with Obinze and Ifemelu, they, I think, were much quicker to call each other out on those kind of things. I think one thing that stood out for me, I'm trying to think about how it is a lesson, but being true to yourself and how you feel, she hid for literally years. It felt like a decade. I don't know how long it was, but she hid forever from a Benze. And then they meet at the at the bookstore and it's like, hey, we're back. Jazz hole. Who can forget the name of the bookstore? Um, and then even it seems like they met maybe a time or two. And then he asked her, where did you go? And she told him. And she had been afraid of his response that whole time. And he responded with, wow, I can't imagine how incredibly hard that was for you, um, which was an amazing reminder of the things that we hype up in our mind as being the most terrible things may not have been. I don't know how, how he would have responded in the moment or where he would have been on his journey, but her willingness to speak what she felt and stay true to what she felt really carried her far, even when it meant that she had to do something on her own. And she gained a lot of confidence by leaning into her feelings. Like she felt like Zoe was being run poorly. She felt like she could do it better. She tried to squeeze that in and Doris said, no, do your own thing. And she, and she did it. So I, I don't know. Maybe the lesson is trust yourself and not one, Believing yourself to believing yourself enough to speak out and take action, asserting how you feel. But that was something that was really remarkable in all of the ways that she moved in America and also in Nigeria. Yeah, I think there is something there kind of picking up from you, Leah, around. Yeah, mentioning like how close to her chest she held certain things um, particularly, I guess, in the relationship realm, but um, how as soon as she was able to open up about, and I, I did she ever tell anyone that she and Blaine weren't actually together? Like, or was it just that she and Opens a, like, Ronnie was kind of like, call him, get over yourself. And so she let that facade go. But there's a bunch of moments throughout the book where she she lets go of the American accent. She lets go. She she starts using, you know, um, taking care of her natural hair. She, um, you know, all these decisions where she kind of like gets away from herself and then goes back to her truth um, that really opened doors. And so I do think there's yeah. What is that lesson of just like that being authentic, being true to yourself um, and how that is actually like the path forward, the path of least resistance, (laughs) really? Well, I was left wondering about how to how to be yourself and be authentic without needing to kind of pull other people down. And it's but it's that seems like this very idealistic thing that I hold up high but have trouble accessing. Like when I think about her leaving Zoe, I would have had the same complaints about, you know, these people are being superficial. This is, uh, we're not supporting like positive ideals for, especially for women. And I'm wondering, okay, could there have been a way to, for her, you know, to leave, start her own thing while being kind of letting people each have their own thing or respecting their own thing. 
And it's reminding me of another quote, a very small little uh, scene. This was when they were talking about, um, uh, it was a bunch of Blaine's friends at a dinner party. And there was this a white guy who was, um, you know, they like, oh, he's a Harvard legacy. He's he's crippled by all his privilege. And he he never takes an opinion. He always just says, I see what you mean. And I was so struck by that sentence because I, again, I ideal, I idolize this idea of someone who can be very understanding and not like, not judge or not have a strong opinion. And I appreciated that being shown in a more negative way. At least that's how I read it. Like, maybe this isn't such a good thing to just always say, I see what you mean. And I'm curious what you all think about this kind of spectrum of having an opinion to just making everybody else happy or, or not not causing any waves. I think there's a couple characters in the book that are not causing any waves. I mean, Kosi being one of them. And it it doesn't, I think we all admire the way if Amelu is bold and contrarian and speaks her mind, no matter the consequence, most of the time. Uh and and so I think it seems there's a very clear viewpoint in the book about uh, is the best way to show up in the world. Yeah, I was really not connecting with Kosi by the by the end of of the book, and I mean I think it's easily not to as how she was painted, but for me, you know, the the comment about um, when they had their baby girl, and the first comment she said when she was born was, oh, well, next time we'll have a boy. It felt so outdated to me that she would say something like that. But then it's also not at all. And that, you know, can speak to like where my mindset goes and, you know, progressive culture versus many cultures are still wildly patriarchal and misogynistic. But I mean, and there were times I did felt bad for Kosi because I don't know about you all, but I was naively surprised that she knew about the affair. I mean, that probably maybe was naive once I kind of read it and my shock went away a bit. But I was like, oh, she she knows she's not as innocent as she comes off. Uh, but, you know, she's playing her part. How could she not know? He told her if Amelu is back and then now he's gone on dates every night right. <laughs> during the day for hours every day. She definitely knew. I think when, one quote that Ithamelu had about Kurt at the beginning of chapter 31, she said she had not entirely believed herself while with him. And I felt like that was true for Kurt. It was true for Blaine. And it also seemed true for Obenze and Kosi because it's like, this is someone that I should be with. It, it you know, Kosi was beautiful and performed the task that they believe a wife should do, but it wasn't enough. And I think that something about believing who you are with them or believing the depth of your love, Kosi, if I believe, we don't know, but I would like to believe that if Amelo would have known that that wasn't something that Obenze valued. And so she wouldn't have said that with having a child. Like it just seemed like they were, always at such a deep level of communication and so in sync that 
Kosi's relationship or Blaine or even Kurt. They were nice people. They just weren't Obenze or Ifeme Lu's person. I think Obenze showed a wide range of emotional intelligence. This part, you know, when he admitted to Ifemelu, like why he married her is because he was at a very vulnerable place. Um, I don't think a lot of men can admit to certain things like that, especially leaning into speaking about their vulnerability and, you know, what they were going through. And I think obviously that vulnerability had to do with Ifemelu kind of just leaving him, um, you know, in the dark. But yeah, Leah, I completely agree. I also think he didn't really have space to be, he could have lied, but then she would have known. But it seems like their relationship was so direct that they asked, she asked very direct questions. I don't know if it was a second or third date, but she was like, did you bring a condom? Like, you know, just very, putting it out there very much or, and he said, so what happened? All of their conversations were a level of direct had such like a raw vulnerability, even when he spoke about his mother passing away, which was really sad. And yeah, I, I, that's one of the reasons I think this is the most beautiful love story. Hello, everyone. It's Caitlin. I wanted to first say a sincere thank you for listening and also invite you to join our Patreon community. It's a place to continue these conversations off air to submit your own thoughts and ideas to be on the show, for you to join a community that will help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whatever those may be, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter where we share little snippets of what's going on on Patreon or go right ahead and join the community right now. All the links are in the show notes. I was surprised by how how bad I felt for Kosi by the at the end because I up until the moment that he told her that he was having an affair I didn't really see her as a very substantive character I didn't like her and then I was surprised by her reaction and I think even Obenze thought himself oh it would have been easier if she just got mad that would have this would have been fine it would be easy to walk away from but the fact that she was sad and begging and you know she also was right in her protest of we did decide to do this we're a family we have a child i think you know definitely i think the story would have been different if there was no child and it reminded me of a book marie and i read the mothers by Britt bennett meredith or leah have either of you read that mm-hmm. i haven't so part of the story also involves this this question of you know, should two parents stay together with a child if they're not really in love or would they be better off like with the person they really love? And it was funny because in the mothers, I was so like team, you know, affair, quote unquote, um, like that they'll uh, they'll be happier. But then in this moment, I was really torn of Kosi is right. I but I open Zay and Ifemelo, I want them so bad, but I was really more affected by her kind of protest of it than I thought I would be. And she put out the matching clothes for them, which I'd love. It was like the most random detail, but I love that she did it. He said that he noticed they had never gone anywhere super matching, but it was a flex. <laughs> it was. <laughs> uh, I, this is an incredible, as I mean, this book has all of the things, including the like, 
rom-drom, the romantic drama. I mean, the the whole second half of the book, well, it's the like, will they, won't they, they finally start having the affair. And then, yeah, the cozy wild card. Because I think, you know, we're almost led to believe that she's such kind of almost like a pushover and a pleaser that she's going to be out of the picture pretty quickly. Um, So uh, there's a lot of tension there to get to that final scene where they, he shows, shows up at her door. So I guess Meredith and Caitlin, you two were the ones that hadn't read this before. I, how, how did the end of the book hit you? And Leah too, but you and I had read it before. So I, I mean, like I knew they got back together but I still, I still loved, loved it in the moment again. <laughs> well, as I was reading, I had, you know, I was like, okay, I've got 60 pages to go and she e- e- hasn't even seen Obinze yet. Like, what is going on? Is this story going to just like crush me <laughs> in a cliffhanger? And then finally and very suddenly he came back into the picture and I was like, okay, boom, we're done. They're together. And then, of course, there was, you know, the, the break they had. And then again, it's not until one single page is left and Obinze comes back. And I have to do this thing when I'm reading books where I like block the the words with like a piece of paper or something because I just want to like skip to the bottom of the page. So I'm like, I know it's the last page of the book. I'm like blocking it so I don't read it. And I'm like, she's with freaking Fred. Like what is going on? I guess I'm just going to have to learn to, you know, live with my not happy endings. And then I was like, oh, thank God. It was know, an emotional was- ride. <laughs> It was so hard not to skip ahead because I'm not that kind of reader. I normally will not do it. But I was like, I mean, I think it was like up to page like tw- like 20 left, 15 left. I'm like, we don't, what is going on? You know, and then he's like talking business and he's on a trip. And I'm like, I don't care about these guys. I just, <laughs> where where are you going with Melu, Vinzi? Like, and then I was like starting to get a little nervous with the author because I think she wrote certain times in such a realist perspective. Like she didn't sugarcoat things. You know, we did have a rom-com. We had a beautiful love story. But this was also a very real book in my mind. Like she dove deep and wasn't afraid. And I was like, you know what? I bet she's going to be a realist. And Obinti's probably going to stay and be like wildly unhappy the rest of his life. Remember when he was saying that when they're at the party, he realized like, oh, well, well now we're at Krishnin's before we were at wedding. Next, we're going to be at funerals, and then we're just going to die. Um, and when I read that part, I was like, oh, he's going to stay. I think he's going to be one of those endings where I'm not happy with the author. And, you know, if Emilia, we don't really know what happens with her. She, like, you know, just she's kind of left with a question mark. You know, sometimes we're watching one of those, like, rom-coms, and, you know, it doesn't end the way the Hollywood ending becomes. You're like, seriously, you know, just watch two hours. But no, I was, I was very happy with the end. Um, and I thought her response, her last line was so good, you know, ceiling. And I'm going to make sure I get it right. Come in. Like, I thought it was like, it was three words if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ceiling come in. Uh, I was like, that's so her. Like I thought they, she wrapped it up. That it is so hard to wrap up a book and a story. And I thought uh, this was really well done. I've read this before, but I could not remember anything about, I just remembered the tone. And I remember as I was reading, it was coming back to me, but I couldn't remember how it ended. And I felt like if Amelu was such a strong woman, I didn't want her to be a side chick. Like she has main character energy 
And so the whole time when her and the Benze were having these like dates during the day or at night or if you could spend the night, that just wasn't what I wanted for her. And so, but then on the other hand, it's like, we love him, right? Like this is a great person. So we do want him to kind of struggle, I guess, as he's deciding back and forth, but it was so much back and forth. And I was rooting for Ifemelo because we'd been on her side the whole time, but I felt bad. I think Caitlin, you said for Kosi, because it's not like something else happened that something happened with Kosi or someone did something or, you know, you, it, it just was, she, she wasn't, she wasn't Ifemelu and they didn't have that connection. And I felt putting myself in Kosi's shoes, like that is really just a hard realization to recognize. But I don't think hiding her head in the sand was the answer, but it was, I was a little bit conflicted at the end and I wanted something more. And then I wasn't sure what was going to happen with Fred, but I felt like if Ifemelu and Obenze, they just had this special connection. They also, they also share disdain for the same things. Like they didn't like bravado. They didn't like pretense. I'm reminded of when he was talking about how Imaneke said, oh, this guy mispronounced this word and, and spelled it out instead of saying it. So he didn't even know how to say it. And he said they both laughed, but Imaneke knew he didn't know how to say it. And that is something that I feel like was, if Amelu like captures her approach perfectly where she would have been really upset about this and... They were just, they were the perfect characters, compliments for each other. Um, so I was happy with how it turned out, but a little bit disappointed in all of the back and forth. And I was also trying to remember, like, are they going to get caught? Because that would be some drama, too. And I mean, she was really dismissive of Obinze, you know, when she, I thought the way he said, I actually think I should go on the trip alone. I just want to get some perspective. Things are moving fast. I I thought that was very reasonable. And she was like, fucking coward. Are we allowed to curse on us? Um, yes. It's a quote. <laughs> um, and, and and then, you know, she just shut him down, shut him, shut him away. And I think that shows a part of her personality that she might find it easier to shut things away than confront them. Um, we've seen that in her past with him and with others. Um so yeah, I, I kind of was the same with Leah. Like sometimes I was rooting for her and other times I was like, oh, good, he's a, a good guy. I mean, what they're doing is it's not a good thing right now, but there's a deep love and where does it go? Well, I'm noticing, I'm thinking to myself that if I was being more critical of Obinze and Ifemelu, we don't actually see them have any healthy conflict. Any conflict they have kind of is one of these, it's like a big silence, like, if Emilio's big silence for 10 years, and then the example you just brought up, Meredith, and they kind of are just this like perfect fairy tale couple. And I'm trying to think of why I am not actually bothered by that. Cause I think if someone told me that was the premise, I'd be like, that's, that's stupid or that's boring, but somehow it worked. And I was just so in there's still tension in their relationship, though. I mean, they don't always agree on everything. And I think that's why their relationship is so fun to witness, is that they spar with each other and they kind of challenge each other. Um, and so I think, I don't Did know. Did they spar on um, any, like, 
important topics. I feel like they kind of spar. I'm, in my memory, it's, it was sparring on like little opinions on stuff, but I, you know, wasn't about like what job should I have or like big life decisions or were there things like that that I'm not remembering? Yeah, maybe not. I, I think uh, I'm trying to remember back like what, you know, when you're young, that's the other thing. It's like the, the majority of the relationship we saw between them was they were so young. And now we're fast forward to they're older now and there are serious things in their lives, such as, you know, um, family members dying or or like having emotional distress or, um, you know, his wife and child. But we're still kind of just seeing like the affair is obviously, um, again, this sort of just like romantic moment for them. So, yeah, I, I guess we don't see that. But for me, I felt sort of confident that if they did have to have conflict. I appreciate you bringing up, though, that like both of them. Yeah, it's just sort of they cut each other off like that. That That's their their historical way of dealing with conflict. So that, that doesn't bode well. But I guess I believe in them. I do, I too. And, you know, you could see with her other boyfriends, she was always noticing all these things she didn't like about them. And that was never really the case with Obinza. You can tell. Yeah, I think I was just kind of trying to play devil's advocate in my mind of because also, you know, a lot of the times I think a happy ending is boring, but that's all I wanted in this story. <laughs> I also wonder if they how things would have gone if they had been together on their journeys, because I feel like if Amelu would have looked down on Obenze for his immigration scandal in London, and it's easy to look back and kind of see how things Play out, but she did look down on some of the people that she encountered, especially in the hair salon. People, I mean, she was in the United States lawfully, and she was able to come on a student visa and stay. But she, she did by the end of the book. Well, by the end of her time at the United in the United States, I think she felt more compassion. But at first, it was kind of like, "I'm here legally, and I have I'm going to be able to get papers, and you can't." And I wonder how that would have played out at various points. But they also, they seem to acquire the same lessons. Like she asked him, why aren't you so obsessed with America anymore? And he was like, well, I could buy it. If I couldn't get the visa first, it was, I don't know if you've ever heard the song, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> By Mike Jones, it's like, back then you didn't want me, now I'm hot, you all on me. And that's this, like, I didn't have money when I first applied for the visa. They wouldn't let me come. Now that I have money, I could buy all of Miami. I can buy America is what he said. Um, and that, you know, it just resonates with. And I don't think that that was her experience because she never had as much money as he did in America. But maybe she just saw that that was true. And I wonder, had they been together at those hard times, would there have been more dissonance if she was kind of a rule follower in many respects and he was figuring it out? in less lawful ways. Well, I I think she had a little bit of that, but she didn't really own up to it as much. So I believe it was her friend Ronnie who called her out on this when she was being judgmental to Ronnie about, um, you know, her different boyfriends and, and wanting that Jeep and, you know, having men just fall, things fall from the sky for her. And Ronnie was like, well, how do you think you got your American visa? It was your white boyfriend, Kurt. Didn't he get you your first job? You know, and if you look at Obinze, he had no help. 
he struggled, he hustled, he worked so hard. He didn't have somebody like Kurt who could, you know, spoon feed him from, you know, the silver spoon. And I, I, I appreciate how the author called her own characters out. You know, like, I think there would have been an easier way just to kind of like keep going forward. But I love the way that she was so thoughtful and articulated a different angle. And it could have been by another friend or a family member. Um, and she, she really let us dive into her main characters. And one thing I was going to ask you guys that I was kind of curious about, because Emily was, she is such a direct woman. She doesn't hold back, but I think she puts a lot of thought into different situations. was a situation with um, DK, um, his suicide attempt. I was, I was expecting to go into his story about his suicide attempt. I thought it was going to be an opportunity to talk about a young boy born in Nigeria, losing his father, moving to America, being Nigerian, but then growing up as, you know, a black American, but then his mom saying that you're not, you're not black or don't act like that black. And then obviously his suicide attempt. And then I, I felt like, you know, he came to visit and it was more about his healing rather kind of diving into like the causes and effects. But yeah, I was just curious how other people were kind of expecting that story to go or if Amelia's response to it, along with like, you know, us readers, what we were waiting for or not waiting for. I am kind of curious as to how this fits in into sort of the overall themes of the book. And maybe it's, you know, it's part of the immigration experience, the immigrant experience, the experience of being black in America. I'm not exactly sure, like, part of this, like Chimamanda was kind of getting at maybe a lot of these different things. But yeah, I I also found it kind of hard that they didn't, we never heard DK's really much about his experience and what was happening for him. And it became another point in time where people were talking about depression and the differences and how that's handled culturally. Um, But that that's as far as it went. So it felt sort of, it was a big moment in the book. I think it delayed um, FM's trip back to Nigeria and, and then it just kind of went away. Yeah. So I didn't know how to really process that, that portion of the book. It felt to me like one of the few times that she rejected her Nigerian heritage as in favor of this American approach, because everyone said like, oh, that that's just him being in America. Nigerian kids aren't depressed, whatever. And she kind of pushed back on that. Like this is, I think it scared her to the core. And I, I get that. I'm an aunt. Um, it's one of my favorite titles. And I can't imagine that situation, but she, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think if there were other ways that she adopted like what was seen as the American view over her traditional view. But in this instance, I felt like she kind of understood it. And it was also interesting because she had just seen him and seen him as like the man on campus who the girls would like and the boys want to be like, and he was very charismatic. And that was like a beautiful description of him. And then to go from that to the other and also her 
having to hold back from her instinct to blame Auntie Uju because she said, like, you shouldn't have told him this or these other things. And just it was one of the complexities. You're right. They never fully worked out. It would have been nice to tie it up in a bow. But I guess that wouldn't have been that could have been disingenuous to how depression and suicide work. I hadn't actually thought about the fact that we don't we didn't learn his backstory. I think I made a lot of similar assumptions to you, Meredith, as to what might have caused his depression. I think, you know, also, Leah, that makes a lot of sense with you don't always know why someone gets in that situation of, you know, their mental health failing them in that kind of way. And in some ways, the book could have, I think, worked just fine without that whole thing. Um, But I also think it, yeah, brought kind of Ifemela her own tragedy to talk about with Obinze after his tragedy of his mom dying and allowed her to, it probably could have even, you know, expanded more into other ways of her thinking about children or parenting or life in America versus Nigeria. You definitely did see her wanting, wishing she could tell him, oh yes, you can come live here with me. And maybe that was kind of her way of coming like truly coming back home and being like this is the place to be uh not america but she held back on that because she knew it wasn't you know it wasn't her call to do that without auntie uju as part of that kind of decision it was also interesting because the way she told obenze in her email was like oh something came up no no biggie i'm good um but i have to handle it and then she told him the full truth later, and he was alarmed. And then she said later on, I didn't tell anyone this once I arrived in Nigeria because I knew they wouldn't understand. And when she did finally tell, I think it was Ronnie, she was very upset with her response. I forget what, do you remember what Ronnie said? I think maybe it was a little bit like, oh, this is kind of a fake problem. Yeah, like only Americans have this problem, but I have to look back and figure out where she said it. And then, like, yeah, that he'll be that's okay. That's my recollection. And yeah, and I, I think kind of yeah, playing that it was like kind of an American thing too, or maybe even Western. But I think if Amelo also she said it's go ahead, Leah. foreign behavior. Foreign behavior. She said later, running Ronnie Undo told her, "I'm looking on on mine." It's on the last page of chapter 50. But Ronnie responded, I don't understand how a fine boy like DK would want to kill himself. A boy living in America with everything. How can? That is very foreign behavior. And then Ifemelu said, foreign behavior? What the fuck are you talking about? Foreign behavior? Have you read Things Fall Apart? And she wished she hadn't told Ronnie. She'd been angrier with her than she ever had been. And even though Ronnie meant well, she had said what many other Nigerians would say. And that's where she says she hadn't told anyone else about the suicide attempt. This is the value of reading on your phone or because you can Google words. (laughs) You can search like control fine for words. I never read on my phone. So Leah, you're just doing some knowledge. Well, apparently it's been on my phone for close to a decade, (laughs) which explains why I couldn't find it in my book show. (laughs) I'm actually really glad we came to this part because when I reread it listening to you, Leah, I was like, oh, you know, like, actually, there's emphasis on this because she said, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, because I don't usually see her use that direct of language too often. 
So thinking of, you know, that scene with her friend, very hyped in that moment. Yeah. And it makes me think that there is something more to this about just the immigrant experience, people living from another culture in another place, and especially someone who was sort of ripped out of their their home culture as such a young person and the impact that that has on you almost feeling like you don't belong in either place. And it sounds like the way that he was being parented by Auntie Uju as well was sort of maybe a little bit confusing identity-wise. So I guess we're getting towards the end here. Did anybody have anything that we haven't talked about? Favorite blogs or scenes? Oh, I had a favorite line from a blog. Let me find it. In America, racism exists, but racists are all gone. I love that. Was this the... Yep, this was my... I marked this as my favorite blog, too. Job vacancy in America. National arbiter and chief of who is racist. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) What page is that on? I have the hardcover, and it's page 317, but I think paperback's different, isn't it? It's uh, actually... I can tell you, it's the very end of chapter 34. I love that. And there was another, another long blog that went on and on for pages, and she is basically giving the rules about to an American non-Black, if an American Black person tells you about an experience being Black, don't bring up examples from your own life. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it goes on for pages about what not to do. And I thought that the list of items that she that she enumerated was an amazing, amazing list. And then it is where she says there is no united league of oppressed of oppressed. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is in as well. Chapter 36. It's soon after. Yeah, this is what I was going to flag too. I need that whole blog. Like you could just read it over and over. And I feel like you could find something new every time. That's one of her longer blogs. I think we got to read. Well, I feel like this, this kind of blog is, uh, the, the whole topic is like something that's talked about more nowadays. And I'm curious, Marie and Leah, since you read this close to when it actually came out, did it seem more like new or different from what you were, at least in your own lives, like, uh, you know, the kind of information you were hearing people talk about? I, I wish I could say that I remember to that level of detail. I think it's more about my experience reading it this time, which is just that reading it in this time, knowing how old it is and feeling that so much of what she writes is still so relevant and could be reprinted tomorrow as a newly written article and it would be uh, like get tons of clicks on the internet and likes and um, comments. I, I I think that to me is what stands out is, is that piece of it, how relevant it still is. I think I'm trying to think back, but I want to say I read this in 2014. And so one thing that stands out to me is that the examples that come to mind reading this long list are more recent examples. Uh, that would have been at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement and so I'm thinking of examples now. I don't know. I remember her statements resonating with me generally, but like Marie, I can't remember one line over another. But it is sad that almost 10 years later, this reads like it was written anew. And I 
wonder if 10 years from now I will feel the same, but I suspect at least many of these things I will have recent examples. And Leah, uh, we might need your handy technology. There was a blog. Yeah. She talked about, um, okay, I got it. I got it. So um, <laughs> it is the end of chapter 40. I'll say an American for the non-American black. I highlighted this to share because I thought this really was um, Unified Sisters Co-op, like 101. It's, 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 it's not the purpose of Unified Sisters Co-op, but it's an aim we hope to aspire to is thoughts on the special white friend and having a white friend who gets it. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why in Unified Sisters Co-op, when we talk about racism and, and you know, many different subjects, we're really trying to share lived experiences and as white persons, you know, to kind of sit back and learn um, and unlearn many things. And when, when I read this, I was like, <sighs> like she put this into words that a lot of times I cannot articulate. But I think as a white person, if you were on her page in this blog, like one of the white people she's referencing, it's like a badge of honor. And it's like, to me, this was like completely what the co-op we aspire to be from a white co-founder's perspective. Yeah, when when I read this, it reminded me of the Unified Sisters Reckoning pod where we, one of our assignments was to listen to a podcast by Amanda Seals. And she talks about the difference in white women and women who happen to be white. And as I was reading this, I thought like, this is a, a friend who happens to be white. That's Leah, like you just took the words out of my mouth. Like that was completely it. And you know, we in the co-op, we've talked a lot about the workspace and all different, you know, things that happen for Black women, non-Black women, white women. Um, and when she said, you know, many whites with the same qualifications, but Negro skin would not have the job they have. But don't ever say this publicly. Let your white friend say it. If you make the mistake of saying this, you'll be accused of a curiosity called, quote, playing the race card, end quote. Nobody quite knows what this means. And I just feel like that has been such a talking point we've had in our incredible reckoning pods. And this brought back when you said, Kaylin, like, you know, it's 2022. She wrote this many years ago at this point. And she, I don't want to say she was ahead of the curve because that's not correct. But I'm just happy that these are bigger, wider reaching conversations, um, obviously as an American lens here, that we are now having and she, I mean, I'm just so impressed with this author every time I read one of her books. Yeah, I'm excited to read her other novels now because I'll be honest, I would not have picked up a book this thick from the library on my own. I would have been like, that book's too long, not worth it. And this book was, there wasn't any wasted space or storylines. Like it was all, and like you said, Marie, it has all the different things in it. It has a love story. It has cultural analysis. It has family dynamics. It has personal growth. It's it's amazing. <laughs> it's got it all. And an amazing love story that we were all itching to get to the final page. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you all so much. This has been so fun to do this with all of you and have a, a big group to talk about this big book. And I know we all have lots that I think we'll keep this keep thinking about with this book. It's going to stick with us. Well, on behalf of the co-op, yeah. you know, Lee and I were just like so honored to be included. And this was 
the perfect book to select to um, kindly invite us to be guests. I can't imagine talking about this without you. It was such an incredible conversation. Uh, so thanks for being honorary book club members. Any Anytime you want to talk about a book again, I'm, I'm in. Yes, yes. Uh, Plus one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. This was really fun. And I feel like we could continue talking about this book for the rest of the year because there's so much there. I know. So it was, it, this was really fun and I'm excited. I need to read your other book selections because we're on the same page here. <laughs> Get the mothers. Get the, the mothers. mothers. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Add yeah. it to the list. This is a podcast, but it's also like more than a podcast. Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This is a place for people in love and obsessed with storytelling to share in our admiration of books, music, comedy, and other forms of story, and to fuel our own creativity. So we have a Patreon community that you can try out for free. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and topic ideas to be shared on the show, join a community to help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whether those are hobbies or professionally, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter, where we'll share little teasers of what's going on in Patreon, or you can go right ahead and join the Patreon right now. All the links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, so please tell us by leaving a review, emailing us, or sending a message on Instagram. 